I'm Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now, I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So, let's talk paper scissors. Welcome, welcome. Today's episode tackles the type topics of legibility and readability through two stories. The first is about a horrendously illegible logo criticized the world over. The second is about a designer who is helping to improve the readability of documents for millions through the design of his groundbreaking typeface. But before I tell you these stories, let's back up so that we can be on the same page. Now, what the heck is the difference between legibility and readability, anyway? Well, legibility refers to the degree to which the individual characters can be deciphered by the eye. It's all about how the typeface is designed. Some typefaces are designed to be more legible than others, and specific typographic techniques that affect a typeface's legibility include things like X-height, which, in this case, the larger means more legible, to a certain point, of course. Also character shapes. Traditionally recognized shapes are better than more abstract shapes. Stroke contrast. Again, enough that it reflects traditionally recognizable shapes, but where the contrast isn't too great. The size of a letter form's counters. Space in the open or closed letter forms. Whether or not serifs are used. And then lastly, stroke weight. Not too heavy, not too light, but just right. Type that is designed in such a way that readers can easily distinguish shapes of letters from one another is inherently more legible. Some display type, letter forms that are designed to catch readers' eyes and their attention, should never be used for long passages of text because they are less legible than types that are designed for long passages of text. This is called text style. Some type is purposefully less legible. Think graffiti or certain ornate script fonts. However, by and large, the type that you select for your project should be legible. Illegible type makes it more difficult for our brains to recognize the shapes of letter forms, making it more difficult to process the type and making the act of reading more difficult. Readers should not have to think about the process of reading. Excellent legibility lends itself to excellent readability. Readability is all about how the type is set and whether or not it improves the ease at which long passages of text can be read. So legibility is about the actual letter forms and the design of the typeface, whereas the readability is how that already designed typeface is actually applied and, uh, and laid out in a design. Legibility comes first in order to have a shot at achieving strong readability. You must have legibility in order to try and achieve readability. But aside from clear letter forms, what exactly makes a passage of text more or less readable? Well, a few things. Often serif typefaces are chosen for long passages of text because of the extra weight that they provide along the baseline that improves the visibility of that baseline, helping our eyes follow a line of text. 
Sans-serif fonts are typically preferred when setting long passages of type on screen versus in print, because serifs don't necessarily translate well into pixels and can actually interfere with the legibility of letters. Furthermore, size, larger type is more readable to a point until it makes the length of a line too short and then negatively impacts readability. Line spacing, also called letting. Line length, also called measure. Alignment, left aligned is the norm in the Western world so that every time we move and we read the next line of type, we know exactly where to start and that left aligned uh, text. And so our brains don't have to think about that step. Also letter spacing called tracking or how much white space exists between individual characters. And lastly, word spacing. And this is simply the space between words. Now that's a lot. There's a, all of these techniques can be tinkered with to improve the readability of a passage of text, although often the default in many word processing and design uh, programs are really set to be inherently readable. All is to say that you can tinker with each of these things I just mentioned above, but going with the basic uh, standard format, 12 point times New Roman, 120% um, default letting. It's a little bit boring, but, but really it is quite readable. Now, in all of these typographic strategies I've mentioned, the secret sauce to making a document readable lies in finding middle ground. By that I mean that too little or too much of any marking or spacing will impact the overall readability of a document. For example, if lines of text are squeezed together, the document likely can still be read, but it might not be considered readable. If lines of text are spread far apart from one another, the document can likely still be read, but also again, likely it won't be labeled as readable. Lines of text that are given adequate white space to breathe, but are near enough to the lines above and below is a good balance. A visual middle ground or Goldilocks approach, as I like to call it, should be the goal. Let me now introduce you to two examples of legibility and readability, or rather illegibility and improved readability. One is a logo, the other a typeface. The year was 2006. Creative design and branding firm Wolf Olins, who has worked with some of the world's most recognizable brands like Google and Uber, won the bid to design the visual branding strategy for the 2012 London Olympic Summer Games. The Brief. The 2012 logo was supposed to creatively capture London's Olympic spirit and inspire the vision that 2012 is everyone's games. In 2007, the logo was revealed. The world was gobsmacked. The logo was met with disapproval and hostility. It was called childish, ugly, ridiculous, and in no way representative of the brand. An official public poll by the BBC found that 80% of those surveyed gave the logo the lowest possible rating. A petition circulated in Great Britain that had 48,000 signatures to have the logo scrapped and started again. 
but the Olympic Committee stood behind the design. As they put it, our emblem is simple, distinct, bold, and buzzing with energy. It feels young in spirit, not afraid to shake things up, to challenge the accepted, to change things. Managing Director of Wolf Olin's, Aija Nuakori, says, the notion of energy was really at the heart of the mark itself. When asked how they developed the design, Wolf Olin's chairman, Brian Bolin, explained, the mark itself came from an energy grid we drew of lines that moved around, contained within a rectangle, which we stopped at one particular moment. This was used in a very random way to create a pattern, so this idea of freeform is right at the heart of the brand. The typeface is very much links back to that. We never recommended anything with horizontals or verticals. It was always slightly to one side to make people look at this thing and think twice. We used the term prescribed anarchy, and it wasn't that we just wanted to draw something spiky. But how much did the Inukshuk Meets 1989 logo cost to create? Well, a rumored 400,000 pounds, approximately $800,000. Yee! So perhaps the lesson here is twofold. Not everyone will get your vision. It's impossible to make everyone happy. But secondly, you don't always get what you pay for when it comes to branding. Understanding the true soul of the brand is critical to design effective and relevant visual communications that will resonate with your brand's community. But was this logo really a fail? For one thing, it's instantly recognizable and incredibly memorable. And we're still talking about the design that was unveiled more than 13 years ago. Now, they received a lot of criticism in the press, but the firm also received support for the brand identity. Nuakori breaks it down. Interestingly, the critical reviews tend to point out the rules we've broken. And in that sense, they tend to be correct. The only disagreement is whether those rules need to be broken. Take a look at the attacks. It's too dissonant. Absolutely. The dissonance was intentional. It doesn't reflect any of London's famous landmarks. Absolutely. The world knows about those. We don't need to tell them. It's too urban. It's too young. Absolutely. It's really interesting that even though the tone might be off, they shine quite an acute light on exactly the points we were trying to make. In an article entitled The London 2012 Logo, A Designer's View, published in 2007, six designers weighed in on the logo's effectiveness. I thought this was an incredibly interesting article, and the designers had a lot of very important things to say. So I've summarized the six viewpoints here for you today. First up is Paula Shear, principal at Pentagram. Shear appreciates that the logo bypasses cliches of torches, of London city landmarks, Big Ben, anyone? She also appreciates that the logo ignores conventions of typographic legibility, interesting, and instead opts for abstract form. The jagged shapes don't represent one type of sport. Instead, they kind of represent the energy of the games, with a bright color palette to reinforce this idea. Shear also likes the fact that the messaging can be a little subliminal by associating this jagged shape and bright colors to the London 2012 Olympic Games, 
all of a sudden, other jagged shapes and bright colors remind us of the games. Now, that said, while Sheer likes the idea behind the logo, she thinks the execution of the drawing and the placement of the words London is amateurish. Her exact words are, I'd give it five stars for the idea, but none for the craft. Ouch. Alternatively, famed designer of the Jurassic Park logo and associate art director at Alfred A. Knopf, Chip Kidd, has fewer nice things to say. In fact, he is in almost complete opposition to Shear's ideas. His main beef is the fact that there's just nothing even remotely British about it. He's in such gobsmacked awe in its atrociousness that he gives it no stars. Yikes. How about Rick Valicenti, founder and principal of Thirst? Rick doesn't have much of anything nice to say. In fact, he wonders if in selecting this design, the team at Wolf Olin's wanted to give the world a mirror at which they could look at who they really are as a collective creative force. I rate this design's contribution one star for effort and zero if these disposable results were accompanied by an invoice. Oof. Next up is Lisa Simpson, great name, creative director at Pearl Fisher. She makes an excellent point that while the logo's goal is to be iconic and universally appealing, it's neither. Although its graffiti-like characters are designed for a younger audience, isn't this a little stereotypical? I mean, after all, the more minimalist and sleek designs seen in the likes of Apple products or Nike or Nintendo are revered and loved by those across generational lines. So Simpson feels that we should give the younger audiences more credit when it comes to their design savviness. The one thing Simpson believes they got right is the non-static and ever-changing nature of the logo, which gives it the space to evolve in interesting ways. What was her rating? Simply two stars. Irk. The fifth designer is Carl Rush, founder and creative director of Crush Design and Art Direction. So Rush recalls the outpouring of criticism from the general public and asks the question, why does everyone think they're a designer? He acknowledges, though, that this is actually a good thing for the design and creative industries, that the general public thinks that graphic design matters enough to be so up in arms about this logo. He thinks the logo actually works quite well if the brief was to inspire everyone and reach out to young people, but he fears it might look outdated by the time the 2012 Olympics roll around. He gives it four stars. Generous. Lastly is designer Andrew Boguki, principal and chief creative director at Core Brand. In his own words, In my mind, an Olympic logo should meet two simple standards. Clearly communicate the year and place, both verbally and graphically, and capture the contradictory notions of the game's stature and heritage with its contemporary excitement and energy. He thinks it hits the mark in some respects, but misses in others. For example, he likes the fact that the English punk rock scene seems to be the source of iconic inspiration versus more stereotypical representation of structures in the host city. However, the execution leaves something to be desired. Its rejection of rules just doesn't quite fit the organizational structure of the institutionalized behemoth that is the Olympics. Poignantly, 
he does suggest that this logo would be perfect for an Olympics after party. Hmm. He gives it three stars. Well said. Relating back to our main focus of legibility, one thing is clear. This logo was designed with other priorities in mind, legibility taking a backseat to capturing the spirit and energy of the host city and of the Olympic Games. But the question remains, should a logo that uses numerals to communicate the year of a global inclusive event be illegible? Hmm. While I don't necessarily agree with the design decisions made, uh, who am I to decide? I mean, those decisions were way above my pay grade, let's face it. Now moving on to our next story that's all about readability. The year was 2008. Dutch design student Christian Boer had a vision for a way to take his gift of graphic design and help himself and millions of others around the world at the same time. Now you see, Boer is dyslexic, which is a learning disorder that occurs in the area of the brain that processes language. According to the British Dyslexia Association, Dyslexia occurs across the range of intellectual abilities. It is best thought of as a continuum, not a distinct category, because there's no real clear cutoff points. And co-occurring difficulties may be seen in aspects of language, motor coordination, mental calculation, concentration, and personal organization, but these are not by themselves markers of dyslexia. Bower wanted to make a typeface that would improve readability for millions. Bower's breakthrough in studying his condition was that dyslexic individuals have a difficult time identifying 2D objects, but they don't have a problem identifying 3D objects. He created 3D letters that he then modeled backwards into 2D letter forms. Symmetrical forms of traditional type is what makes it difficult for those with dyslexia to distinguish letters from one another. Therefore, he threw traditional type rules out the window. He designed a typeface that prevents four things from happening. Mirroring, turning, swapping, and overcrowding. Now, because this is a typography-heavy podcast, I'm gonna get specific. And I encourage you to check out dyslexifont.com. That's D-Y-S-L-E-X-I-E-F-O-N-T com dyslexifont.com to see exactly what I'm talking about. Now this typeface is designed with nine core features that make it easier for individuals with dyslexia to read. So number one is heavier bottoms. Each character has a thicker stroke weight towards the bottom of the letter form to ground it. This helps prevent letters from being flipped upside down in individuals' minds. So P's into D's for example. Number two is different shapes. So the shapes of the letters, such as close cousins B and D again, are subtly different. If you were to mirror or flip horizontally the letter B, it would not have the same shape as a letter D. The lowercase B has much greater weight on the lower right-hand side of its round bowl, 
while the lowercase d has much greater weight on the upper left-hand side of its round bowl. So therefore, these different shapes and characters make it so that the, the actual letter forms aren't mirrored in people's minds. They are distinct shapes that look different from one another. Number three is better spacing. So Bohr makes sure that the distance between individual characters is increased throughout to avoid crowding and make the typeface more readable overall. Longer sticks. So some of the ascenders and descenders of the lowercase letters are longer than other letters within the typeface, as well as longer than typical typefaces at similar point sizes. This also helps characters remain distinguishable from one another. Number five refers to capital letters and punctuation. So very smartly, these both have increased weight to give the effect that they are bolded. So all of the capital letters and all of the punctuation within the set of characters look as though they are bolded. This helps emphasize breaks, endings, and beginnings of sentences. Number six, inclined letters. So letters that look alike are slightly sloped also to distinguish them from one another. Number seven, bigger openings. Larger open and closed counters help make each letter recognizable while providing each letter with a little more breathing room to make it that much more readable. Number eight, various heights. So letters that look alike are actually misaligned and exist at different levels to avoid swapping. Now, a great example of this is the crotch of the letter V, uh, crotches of the letter W, and crotch of the letter Y all exist at different levels. So V has the lowest crotch, W in the middle, and Y the highest. Number nine is higher X height. So this last one refers to the height of the lowercase letters, and it's been increased, but not the width. So this adds white space in and around each letter form also to improve readability without expanding the actual size of the letters themselves. So Bohr has used his research, uh, also his first-hand understanding of his experiences with dyslexia and his knowledge and passion for graphic design to create Dyslexifont, a typeface designed to make reading easier. Since releasing his font into the world, he has received numerous accolades and awards for his work. Namely, first prize at the Smart Urban Stage Awards in Amsterdam in 2011. The typeface was a finalist in two large international competitions in 2013. The Index, designed to improve life awards in Copenhagen, and Fast Company Innovation by Design Awards in New York. It then won first prize later that year, during the Rabobank New Generation pitch in Utrecht. In the years that followed, toy manufacturers approached Boer to use the font on their wooden toys, and in 2015, over 1,000 titles were on the list of books published using the dyslexia font. The font was also made available for free for home use, including a Chrome extension and dyslexia font text editor in 2016. Boer has also been featured on TEDx stages spanning two continents. It's exciting to see a young designer use his creative skills and available technology to make real change in the world. Reading and literacy are such important aspects to being an involved citizen in our world. 
that relatively simple technologies like typefaces that help level the playing field are an exciting step to making our world more inclusive and ultimately a better place for all of humanity. So when thinking about your next design project, keep in mind the seemingly mundane yet critical aspects of legibility and readability. As legendary type designer Adrian Frutiger puts it, From all these experiences, the most important thing I have learned is that legibility and beauty stand close together and that type design in its restraint should be only felt but not perceived by the reader. In this light, often typographic restraint and mindfulness of design to produce legible letter forms help improve readability, thus helping readers avoid reading. And wouldn't you know it, Michael Scott agrees. Today's office quote is a quick one, and it comes to us from season three, episode five called Initiation. Dwight. Michael always says K-I-S-S. Keep it simple, stupid. Great advice. Hurts my feelings every time. And there you have it. Another episode is in the books. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I look forward to the next time we get to talk paper scissors. (music) 